Hey, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with astrologers Catherine Urban and Patrick Watson about calculating astrological charts by hand uh, without the use of a computer or an app or a uh, mobile device or any other things. Uh, hey, welcome, both of you. Hey. Hey, thanks for having us. Yeah. All right. So this is um, this is a big topic, but we're going to have a nice little discussion here. And the purpose of this episode is not necessarily to teach people in detail how to calculate charts by hand, but we're going to have kind of like a preliminary discussion to that where we talk about the issue of calculating charts by hand, some of the things that are involved, some of the resources that you need in order to do that, and where you would want to start if you wanted to learn chart calculation. And then um, once you've listened to this discussion, I think everyone will be in a much better position, both in terms of where to go to start calculating charts by hand, as well as having some appreciation for why you might want to consider doing that, or why it's something that could be useful to each individual astrologer. So part of the genesis of this discussion is we were talking, Catherine and I were talking about this last summer, because Catherine actually released a whole eight-hour video workshop on how to calculate charts by hand. Um, and you released that, what, a couple of years ago, Catherine? Yeah, it was about two summers ago. Okay, awesome. And then, Patrick, you recently actually uh, purchased Catherine's workshop, went through it, learned how to calculate charts by hand using it, and then you successfully took um, an exam with the NCGR, the National Council for Geocosmic Research, where you had to do chart calculation uh, a test with that and you actually successfully passed the test yesterday right yeah i did i got 99.4 percent correct so <laughs> uh yeah um yeah that's that's correct i took uh catherine's uh course and it was really, really helpful i especially liked the the premise of the the title of the course which is catherine why thank you yeah it's a uh, ca chart calculations for the apocalypse <laughs> i liked that because you know i mean you know not that uh these scenarios are likely but it is kind of nice to know that if you didn't have access to all of the things that we rely on uh for chart calculation that um uh you know it is still possible to do astrology and was for literally thousands of years prior to uh calculators and computers so uh, I, th I thought the title was really, really funny and uh, really cool, and uh, the course is really um, easy to take. Um, it was like if I, I, uh, I think if it sort of it doesn't feel like you're being lectured at. You, you're very, you're very good at just. Uh, uh, it feels like you're studying with a close friend or studying with like the the cool smart kid from class on like how to do these calculations. So I really appreciated Aww. that. Oh, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. People, people should check that out on Catherine's website, which is catherineurban.com. And I'll put a link to it in the description below this video or on the podcast website for this episode. Um, so let's talk about that and let's set the context. So historically, and, and Patrick, I know you wrote an article about your experiences recently, and I'll also link to that where you made some interesting points, um, one of which is that you know, this is the first generation of astrologers right now ever in the history that, um, due to the recent rise, the relatively recent rise of, of computers, of personal computers, of the internet, and now of mobile um, phones and mobile chart calculating apps, it's the first generation of astrologers in history that 
doesn't need to know how to calculate an astrological chart by hand in order to do astrology. And so there's a whole generation of astrologers who, because that's no longer either a precursor or a barrier to entry, um, don't necessarily know how to calculate a chart by hand um, uh, necessarily at all or, or may not be familiar with that. And it's becoming more and more, I think, the further and further we get away from that previous generation, something of an oddity or something of a, like a, it has a unique quality at this point that if you do know how to, how to calculate a chart by hand, you're almost more rare at this point, at least in terms of younger astrologers than people that do. Um, and I guess that really started in the 1970s, 80s, and especially 90s when astrological chart calculating software started to become more and more common and astrologers would start eventually, especially in the 90s and 2000s and 2010s, by using often free chart calculation services and websites or eventually getting astrological software or apps, which just made the necessity of learning how to calculate charts completely not a thing anymore, essentially, right? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of cool that you framed our generation in that way, Patrick, because I had never really thought of it like that before. Um, I know that many of our elders, many of our peers in our astrological community, it was, it was a prerequisite to practicing astrology. You had to learn how to calculate a chart. There was by hand, there was no other way to practice astrology prior to the development of computer programs that do that for us today. And so it, it kind of reminds me of, you know, like we grow up in a generation that's into, you know, we've gone through cassettes, we've gone through CDs, we've gone through MP3s, and it's like we're going back to the records. <laughs> it's like we're going back to analog. And there's, um, a quality that you benefit when you, that you wouldn't otherwise get from just pressing a button that you get from spending the time and calculating that chart out on paper. Yeah. What is yeah, that? That's a great analogy. What is that quality or what is it? I guess it's that because it takes what approximately, let's give a range, like maybe 15 to 30 minutes to calculate like a chart by hand, let's say, once you've got it down or, or, yeah. What would, your, what would your estimate be? I think that's a great estimate. I think it probably takes someone like I, I remember hearing that like William Lilly could do it in like 15 minutes. Like I think he documented that somewhere. And um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm practiced. I don't do it every day, but it takes me about 20 minutes to do a chart. Okay. So, so, so part of that, and tying that in with what you said earlier, is that spending that 20 minutes just constructing the chart and calculating all the positions accurately and drawing the chart um, makes you it gives you a different orientation towards the chart from us from the start because then you're familiar with like every single placement in that chart intimately before you ever even attempt to start delineating the chart yeah i think there's something ritualistic about it um something that's sort of like spiritual in a way like um, the, the idea that math could be something spiritual, I know that's something that a lot of ancient astrologers understood, but it really is like you're, it's like you're setting up your altar almost to me. Um, like you're set, you're doing all this work to set it up so that you can divine these messages about this person's life, basically. Um, so for me, there's something, um, 
nerdy, but also spiritual about it. The math is weirdly meditative. Um, it's sort of almost, re- I mean, I wouldn't say replaces, you know, the function of a prep session, but you're right. I mean, you, uh, you intimately become very aware of the planetary placements because you had to go through the process of calculating exactly where they were. And, um, you, it, through, uh, through all the calculations that you go to find out the midheaven and the ascendant or, or other intermediary angles, um, you you sort of appreciate the the importance of of those things and they're not you just don't take them for granted as much as you do when you can just press a button so there is uh some kind of undefinable quality of uh being more intimately aware on a more mathematical level or underlying more fundamental level of uh planetary positions and placements that yeah is is strangely meditative or or zen or, (laughs) or something I guess it's just part of that general like human observation or tendency that we can observe in many different areas of society of when sometimes when you have to work harder for something, you have a little bit greater appreciation for it. Whereas sometimes if you don't have to work as hard for something, if you grow up that way, you have a different orientation towards it. And I know that that's commonly like, for example, in in our time over the past six months, there's been a lot of discussions about like nepotism babies or about you know, children that are born into wealth versus their parents that maybe had to strive for it, and how parents um, of wealthy children sometimes um, have a struggle over how to raise their kids and instill like good values in them that they grew up with, even though they're growing up in a radically different like environment. Maybe it's a similar sort of rough like parallel there in some way. Right. I worked at a movie theater one uh, a couple of summers, and I earned like maybe. Um, between seven and eight dollars an hour and i remember between shifts i decided i'd go and watch a movie and so i paid for the drink and popcorn and you know after i'd done that i'd i'd spent more money than it took a whole hour to earn um and that was i remember that moment where i handed over that money and i was like wow that was like a whole hour of my life like gone um just for this you know this drink and candy or whatever and uh, so, yeah, I think that experience definitely makes you appreciate things more uh, when you have to do things that are the long, slow, hard way. Very Saturnian. Mm. Right. Yeah. That well, was it, Saturn in my second, actually. <laughs> now, just thinking about it, that was 2007. So, yeah. <laughs> nice, of course. Um, well, and what's funny about that then also is it creates a generational d- divide that's been interesting for me to watch over the past two decades as I've come up in the astrological community because you do have that older generation of astrologers, like the Pluto and Leo generation that was born in the 1940s or 1950s, where when they started learning astrology in the 60s and 70s, you had to learn how to calculate charts by hand in order to do astrology. And so many of them did, and that was part of their process. And it was a somewhat difficult one or it was like a you know it was a little bit of a challenge to do that versus they see all these like young kids essentially or younger astrologers coming up the next generation who don't ever have to have that experience or don't do that and it's been interesting sometimes seeing the tension then between the generations and sometimes the tendency of the older generations occasionally that had to do that saying you know well these younger generation astrologers don't they don't know not as familiar with the astrologer, they don't know what the chart is actually based on astronomically or other things like that. And there's almost, um, you know, occasionally, not usually because I don't want to overplay that, but sometimes like almost like a resentment of the 
like how easy the younger astrologers have it today compared to like, you know, 30 or 40 years ago or what have you. Yeah. Kids these days have it so easy. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. I had to walk to school uphill both ways in the snow. You know, yeah. Um, sometimes you get a bit of that. Um, don't want to, again, overgeneralize, because another thing that I've detected from the older generation is just gratitude. Um, right. You know, when I've talked about this with my recent, like, time-lapse videos and stuff, I've had um, some older astrologers post comments sort of saying things like, you know, this gave me trauma, <laughs> this reactivated <laughs> my, my trauma, you know, or uh, people saying things like, um, you know, never again, you know, this brings back memories, never again. So I also see a lot of gratitude, too, from the old generation that this is something they no longer have to deal with. So, yeah, maybe there's some grievance from some folks. You know, there's also just still a lot of gratitude <laughs> from the people who remember the, the, the worth and cost of it. And I think that's worth it for even us younger and even younger than us astrologers to uh, kind of remember the, the real privilege we have in having astrological software and being able to do astrology with the ease and convenience that we now have. Completely, because even like, and I know Patrick, you just took the NCGR level one. Congratulations! I, oh, I knew <laughs> I knew you were gonna, I knew you were gonna ace it. But yeah, um, like even that exam, and even what I'm teaching in chart calculations for the apocalypse is just calculating a natal chart alone. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about that process. But it does give you so much appreciation for the ancients who not only had to sit there and well, not even ancients. I guess people who are still practicing astrology today. The rigor I refer, of to, I refer to them as the ancients in general. Small A versus large A. I'm sure the Pluto, and, the Pluto and Leo astrologers would love that. Yeah, the, <laughs> yeah. Uh, the ancients, the wise ones. Um, right. But thinking about how you would calculate all the different charts, the solar returns, the progressions, um, monthly returns, if you use them, um, you know, that sort of thing, like calculating right. all these different charts and the patience and the rigor that was required to do that. Um, yeah, I wouldn't want to go back either. <laughs> yeah. Well, that reminds me that um, in ancient times, in some of the Greek astrological texts during the around the time of the Roman Empire and the time of Hellenistic astrology, one of the words that was used to refer to astrologers was mathematikoi, which means math mathematicians. Um, so you'll sometimes see astrologers re referred to as mathematicians, or you'll see astrology referred to as like the mathematical art, um, because it just literally involved so much math and so much um, calculation, not just of different charts, but also of different like exotic timing techniques, uh, like time lord systems that involve a lot of math as well. Um, you know, primary directions or secondary progressions or other things like that that also involve different calculations and just that these people were, you know, doing this all by hand essentially without the aid of, of computers or calculators or anything like that. Unless they had access to the Antikythera mechanism, but you know, who knows exactly how widespread those were. You also get a real appreciation for the kind of shortcuts they found to to determine other things. There's so many um, sort of mathematically like brute force uh, techniques that were used to to try to figure things out that would otherwise take you know tons of tables to figure out the, sort of figuring out the the underlying equations or logarithms would help uh, sort of speed things along. So yeah, people have uh, and astrologers especially <laughs> been uh, pretty pretty clever, and uh, you definitely get a sense of that when you uh, do it for yourself. 
Yeah, because that's the thing is like doing that enough, you realize pretty quickly like nobody's trying to make it harder on themselves than than it has to be, and so astrologers will always use you know any anything that they can, any sort of short that shortcut they can to make things easier. In the '60s and '70s, one of the things that came along, which is crazy recent to me, I didn't realize until somewhat recently, but um, calculators, like hand calculators, um, were introduced in like the 1960s, but they really became more widespread in the 1970s, which is surprisingly recent. But it's like that's something a lot of astrologers then would have used and taken advantage of to speed up calculations. Yeah, you've got a nice calculator there, Patrick. <laughs> yeah. You have one handy, Catherine. I see you like looking around. I do. I okay. do. I think I it was one. released. I, th- I think the calculator came out when Uranus was in Virgo, which otherwise it was kind of mm-hmm. interesting because, you know, if Uranus is about technological innovations and, you know, Virgo is the sign of Mercury, counting, math, you know, then yeah, you have the emergence of this little machine that can do little calculations. So I thought that was kind of a cool Uranus and Virgo invention yeah very cool for sure um and and so it's like you know nobody i don't think i mean maybe there were some tensions back then where it's like some astrologers were like calculator like what kind of lazy person would use (laughs) that in order you know i only calculate real astrologers calculate charts just using you know by hand without a calculator or anything like that and I, i don't know or an abacus <laughs> yeah that's what i was gonna say is like i imagine back in the day there was like some similar two thousand years ago there was a similar debate where they were like only real astrologers you know know how to calculate a chart without an abacus or something like that so there's constantly these little like internal debates maybe in the community of small points of technology and the progress of technology and technology just being used to make things easier and make things more accurate um, as a as a sort of constant, but the the tension between what you gain from technological advances versus what you lose, I guess, is really the core of what we're talking about here. That's mm-hmm. so funny you you mentioned that because even after I I made a little time lapse video of myself uh, doing a chart calculation by hand, and then one of my friends Abigail, who's at C by Starlight on Twitter, um, she uh, uh, she she kind of mock like sort of in a joking way accused me of being lazy because I used a calculator to do the planetary positions for that particular video. And so I kind of accepted that challenge and made a second one where I did not use any calculator at all. Um, and uh, it took me a bit longer. <laughs> but yeah, it can be done with even without calculators. It can be done, but I still recommend using one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't there's <laughs> a, like the calculations in calculating a chart by hand are not difficult ones there's just a lot of little ones and there's a lot of places that you could mess up so it's really just about practice and um with practice you'll be able to catch your mistakes but you know i have i have no pride about it like i use a calculator for every little calculation um just because i don't want to make a mistake and have to do the whole thing over (laughs) oh no i must have like triple checked my calculations on on the ncgr exam even though there was fairly simple you're right it's like a a rube goldberg machine of of math and like each step has to be done correctly or else you'll be off on something later down the line so that's something that she's kind of surprised me is i i've been a fairly math phobic person in my life and so i was actually kind of pleasantly surprised that the math well she wasn't quite that hard it's just a lot of it and and somewhat tedious but you know it's not actually that hard it's just a lot of it and in order 
Yeah, I think that point is really worth underlying for people that are new to this discussion that um, using the methods that were developed and the basic tools and the basic books that were used in the 20th century to calculate charts and what most astrologers over the past century mean by calculating a chart by hand, when you follow that method, it's actually the math is pretty simple and it's pretty straightforward. It's just a matter of understanding the process and um, doing it a few times to get a repetition down so that you know exactly what step you're supposed to do when and why. Um, but once you do that, the math itself is actually relatively simple and straightforward. Totally. Yeah. It's just about having the formulas and knowing where to look to draw um, the information needed for the calculations. But yeah, most of it's basic addition and subtraction. Okay. Some sexagesimal decimal conversions, if you don't have those functions handy on your calculator, I, have, I definitely recommend having that. Uh, but yeah, sometimes it can get a little tricky. But yeah, mainly, mainly just addition, subtraction, multiplication, division. Yeah, yeah. And being able, like you said, Patrick, to be able to convert um, the numbers into like minutes and hours um, and that, well, really seconds and minutes of a degree is really the, what it is. And working with a 24-hour clock. So as long as you can keep that in mind, it's pretty easy. So that's pretty, that's basically the basic, that's like um, grade school mathematical skill, basically. I think then somebody, what, in like grade school or in like, like fifth grade maybe could do this in terms of the basic mathematical knowledge that's necessary or what, what like yeah. grade would you, would you two, you better I don't have children, and both of you do, so you two are probably way better at judging like what like roughly educational level a person might need to pull this off. I would probably say maybe middle school, I mm -hmm. think would be appropriate, like sixth, seventh grade, eighth grade, maybe even. Mm -hmm. uh, it's because there's like different elements of like, I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I, that's, that would be my guess. What would you say, Catherine? <laughs> right. Yeah, uh, probably. Probably sixth grade, uh, seventh grade, maybe. Yeah, I wish someone would have told me, like, back in <laughs> right. math class, you're like, why do we need to learn all this? And if someone would have been like, so you can calculate a chart by hand, I would have been like, dope. <laughs> Let's yeah. do this. <laughs> well, that was actually my big, that was my big realization when I, when I, when I was first reading astrology books, I was in geometry at the same, at, at the same time. And so it was, uh, it was, it was such a convergence of like interests sort of happening at the same time. Like, oh, like, a trine is just, you know, 120 degrees side of a triangle. Like, um, so yeah, I would say sixth, seventh grade probably would be the lowest grade levels that this math is like. So it's not like, yeah, rocket science. And maybe some level of maturity also helps because usually at the end of most, most like mathematical tests and calculations, you don't then like learn your fate and like what's going to happen when you're in your for your 40s in the future or something like that. Yeah, that's more like ninth grade. The, yeah. That's... <laughs> High yeah, school. philosophy. <laughs> right. Philosophy 101. <laughs> All right. So um, one of the tensions that comes up as a result of this and the generational thing that's been interesting to watch is that a lot of the astrological organizations in the late 20th century, they wanted to, um, there was a push to move towards professionalism and uh, the professionalization of the field. And one of the ways that they pushed to do this was through setting up certification processes so that you could um, sort of determine like who was an astrologer versus who wasn't, or 
at least attempting to draw those distinctions in order to um, be able to better, you know, reflect or set some sort of standards within the community, and in order to basically have a better interactions with the public by raising the standards within the field. So, as part of that, in setting up different certification processes, many of the major astrological organizations, at some level of their certification, would require learning or knowing how to calculate a chart, and they would require you to take an exam demonstrating that you know how to calculate a chart. Um, so that's been an interesting debate, though, over the past decade or two, because now there's different astrological organizations. Since that's no longer become the barrier to entry for most astrologers, and since most astrologers um, learn how to do astrology using computers or apps at this point, there's been debates within some of the organizations amongst their leadership about whether chart calculation should continue to be required in order to get their highest level cert certifications or, or some of their certifications. Um, I'm not sure which ones still required it and which ones have dropped it. Do either of you have any idea of the different orgs? Yeah, so NCGR has has kept that portion of of their certification process. Um, ESAR, you have to have knowledge of some of the um, pieces of information um, required to calculate a chart. So you, you know, ESAR will ask you questions about astronomy. And so I also want to say here that learning the chart calculations, as long as you have the formulas, you can do it, but it is sort of like a gateway into astronomy. Like you start questioning like how this stuff matches up in relationship to the celestial sphere, et cetera. Um, so on the ESAR competency exam, you will be asked um, questions about astronomy and also where you would derive some of the information necessary to calculate a chart, but you do not have to calculate a chart to pass the ESAR exam. Okay, so that's the major organization then that's that's dropped the chart calculation requirement. Um, and I know the AFA is, I think, debating it, but I think it's still required by the the American Federation of Astrologers. Uh, yeah. Um, or is the it last time I checked the AFAN site, it seems like you still have to be able to do that. I don't know about OPA. Um, I don't know about OPA, but I I just took the uh, competency exam. And uh, that, yeah, didn't require you to actually calculate chart. You just had to be more aware of some of the astronomy. And then, of course, NCGR does. Although, to note, in the NCGR exam, they do not require you to calculate the entire chart, which is actually sort of a surprise. I didn't know how much of the chart they would ask for, but they, they would uh, provide chart details and they would say, calculate the Ascendant, Midheaven, Mercury, and Venus. And so that's all you would have to do for that chart. And then they'd come up with another chart example and say, calculate the Ascendant, Descendant, and a couple of other planets. So mm. you didn't actually have to do the full thing. They just wanted to see you do it for different quadrants of the globe. Mm. I think they might have changed that a little bit since I took it. Because I know they adapted it so that you could take it online. I yeah, seem to remember that's what I did. Yeah, I seem to remember calculating like pieces and parts of some of them. Um, from different quadrants of the globe, but then there was like one full one that you had to do. So that's uh -huh, kind of so they must have dropped it. Yeah, maybe I <laughs> I lucked out. Um, well, no, I and, and I think one of the things with that is that organizations 
um, you know, with the rise of the internet and everything and so many different free resources that are available and, and other things and online webinars, the different organizations have been struggling to redefine themselves in the, the past decade or two and struggling to maintain relevancy. And I think some of the internal debates that happen in some of the organizations is whether people will learn char calculation because of the perceived difficulty and sometimes the aversion to math math and, and learn, doing like complex mathematical formulas. So some of the organizations, part of their um, internal debates are whether they should keep those requirements or if it'll turn too many people away if it's, if it's too hard or something like that. So that could be like a reason if it's been simplified a little bit by the NCGR. Yeah. And I can totally see both sides of the argument. I can totally see how um, if you're an organization who is sort of creating um, a competency exam to uphold a certain um, level of caliber of astrological knowledge, um, I could understand why they might want to encourage students seeking that pathway of education to learn how to calculate a chart by hand, because there are a lot of things that you develop going through that process. You become, you develop an intimate connection with planetary speed, for example, mm -hmm. um, and also just like the different planetary motions and like diurnal motion, secondary motion. You can you can find like zodiacal motion. You you develop a deeper relationship with those types of. Um, yeah, like with the planets, basically. But I can also see why they might want to do away with that portion of the exam, because if some, if if anything, the recent years, the the recent developments in the astrological community and in our field um, have shown us is that you absolutely don't need to be certified to be a good astrologer. That's that's not a requirement. You don't have to be certified. Um, to know what you're talking about and to have extensive knowledge on theorem and practice, like at all. Um, so I can understand why they might consider getting away or doing away with the calculations in order to make certification more accessible. Right. And yeah, and and furthermore, um, and furthermore, um, I do think that certification while not necessary, there are certain things about it that appealed um, to me personally while I was going through it. I liked the, the structure. You know, um, when I started learning astrology, it was harder to find that type of, of structured learning. So that was really the main draw of it for me was that NCGR offered like these four levels and there was a lot of structure and I could go through piece by piece. But nowadays, there's so many different options to learn astrology, you don't have to go through that. But that was just the most immediately available program for me. And is that, where did you learn chart, chart calculation? Was it through the NCGR and their materials or what was your original motivation? So I started studying astrology in New York City and there is a very strong NCGR local chapter there in the city. And so I studied with a lot of teachers who were proponents of certification and they encouraged their students to get certified. However, I didn't get certified. I didn't actually uh, go through it and learn the chart calculations till I mo moved back to Cleveland. And Julene Lewis, she does the astronomy section in the Mountain Astrologer. She taught me in, okay. in person. Yeah. Nice. 
Awesome. Um, so yeah, so that's really important. Certification, that's a whole topic and a whole debate, as you said, because there's many self-taught astrologers and um, you know, that's a debate in the community because there's a lot of astrologers that are have been self-taught that are um, sometimes rise up to the highest levels in the field that are not certified or didn't necessarily learn astrology from a specific school or, or organization or something like that. And so there's a, a continual debate within the community about whether certification is useful, whether it should be required, whether there should be distinctions between certified astrologers versus not. And this chart calculation thing just kind of gets integrated as like a subset of that since um, I think one of the reasons the certification debate comes up is that astrologers want the ability, as far as the public is concerned, to be able to distinguish between like who's actually a practicing astrologer that's legitimately learned this subject and has some ability to use it and can represent astrologers well or relatively accurately versus, let's say, in the worst case scenario, how would you identify somebody who is just faking it and, and doesn't really know astrology at all or isn't using astrology but is just ripping people off or swindling people or something nefarious like that? How would you tell the difference? And I think maybe you know, 40 years ago, that would be really easy ways. Like, can somebody calculate a chart or can they not? Because that might be an easy way to tell the difference between somebody that actually practices the subject if they've put in that much work to learn how to to do the basis of it versus somebody that that hasn't. Certainly, yeah. I I personally thought it was appealing to have a bunch of letters after my name, <laughs> but anyways, yeah. I think um, like certification when you when you have when you are able to say I'm certified by NCGR, I'm certified by ESAR or AFAN, um, you know, that speaks, that sends a certain message to other members of the community who would actually know what, what those letters after your name even entail. Um, and to some extent, I think to a lesser extent, it signals to the broader public who might not be privy to um, all, all that astrology offers and all that it entails that, oh, there are certification programs that astrologers go through, and it may lend a little bit of credibility to it. And that was something that I was also concerned about in 2015 when I started certification, because astrology hadn't had this big recent boom that we're all benefiting from and has made our field so much more awesome. Uh, but yeah, I was thinking like, I want people to take me seriously when I tell them I'm an astrologer. I want people to know that I've taken these exams and, um, and am connected to organizations that uphold a certain standard of ethics as well. Right. That's a really good point that sometimes, um, you know, astrologers, when they go professional and they start seeing clients professionally or they try to make it as an astrologer full time, one of your challenges is, um, you know, standing out and what differentiates you uh, as an astrologer from somebody else. And sometimes that can that differentiation can be if you've um, taken some certification process or you've studied some specific teacher or, or with some specific organization, and you can say that I, you know, successfully passed this course and have achieved this certification. That does make you stand out, and it does. Um, you know, mark you as some as different than somebody, let's say, that 
doesn't have some specific lineage or school or, or certification that they can point to. So that's part of the ongoing appeal of why some astrologers are still doing certification or seek certification today. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, we don't see this kind of issue in other fields, do we? Part of this comes from the fact that astrology hasn't been part of sort of the university system for a long time. And so that's opened up this space where, uh, yeah, we're not sure exactly how to define what makes an astrologer versus someone not an astrologer or good astrologer. And I think um, certification does serve uh, the role of being kind of a barrier against sort of uh, fraudulence and, and scammers versus people who are doing this uh, legitimately. On the other hand, that means that there's a lot of people who fall in between where, you know, they're not a scammer and they're not, a, you know, a fraud, uh, but, they, um, but they haven't decided to sort of formalize their status in uh, the field. So uh, in that case, people are having, like, the, the general public is just having to sort of judge based on that person's output, whether this person seems to know what they're talking about or not. And I think the general public is fairly good. And doing that, there's a certain there's certain ways that astrologers sort of communicate whether they have reached a certain standard. You can kind of tell that from maybe their blogs or from their social media posts or from how they present themselves and, and other sort of intangibles. But the qual- quality of their memes, yeah, <laughs> right. yeah, the quality of their memes, right? right. Uh, naturally, uh, and um, so. That's, you know, one of the reasons I decided to go ahead and get certified, even though I already have a long presence in the field of astrology. And a lot of people sort of told me, like, Patrick, you don't have to do this. You know, you don't have to. You know, what, what, why are you doing this? And I, the reason why is because I, you know, not to get too like doomsday here, but, you know, I think that in the, in the future, there could be a time when astrologers are, in a position where they have to explain themselves, you know, because this recent wave of popularity, um, you know, may reach uh, its its equal and an opposite reaction of a of a backlash or or, or sort of reorganized or re-energized skeptical movement. And I think that we should be prepared. I mean, it's good in any case to be prepared for these kinds of arguments or debates because they can happen from time to time at any time. But I think we've kind of had it good. Uh, for a long time in astrology with the mainstreaming and popularization of this topic. But I think that we will need to be ready to be able to um, give uh, a more, um, give a better defense of astrology and on, on particular things and to be able to present ourselves more in a unified and professionalized way. Because it's been kind of great in this sort of Neptune and Pisces environment. Like you said, Carol, Catherine, it's made our field so much more awesome and fun and in some cases wild and weird but cool nonetheless but so you know with saturn coming up to neptune that's one of the things that sort of made me like a little anxious about the potentials and i could be overblowing it probably overblowing it but i would still rather feel better about having maybe some of those letters by my name and not just relying on you know the the goodwill i've established or the reputation i've established and instead kind of having something that just definitively proves that you know I, I was able to meet a certain standard of knowledge and that i'm accountable to a code of ethics yeah yeah I've, i share a similar concern patrick i know i know we've talked about that about uh with saturn and pisces and rolling up on that neptune and pisces that has made 
things like astrology and tarot and crystals and yoga, all super cool. Um, I, I know that Saturn is Saturn's coming to town and Saturn says, you know, Saturn wants to um, make sure that everyone who has a, their shingle hung saying that I offer this and I offer that um, knows what they're talking about, right? Because I know a lot of us astrologers, um, and this isn't, this isn't to say, like, I know there's been like a lot of criticism on gatekeeping, right? But I do think that there is a place for um, the elder and upholding a certain level of standards so that people can't go around um, accidentally creating harm because that is something that can happen when people are newer to the field and they don't have that sort of bedside manner developed. And that's something that organizations help foster for people. So I know ESAR, for example, they don't um, just want to show that you know a lot about astrological theory. Um, they want to teach you how to consult with clients. They have like modules where you can go and um, have conversations with someone about their chart and how to be gentle and how to be respectful and not yeah i just did that oh you did (laughs) yeah i just did that yeah i just did that whole uh training was like a weekend uh several hours of of uh uh, consulting skills training basically and you know even though i've been consulting for several years now i still found it pretty useful and pretty helpful because it made me gain more awareness of like how i I hadn't really thought about my own consulting skills because i've mainly come from astrology from a place of just learning as much as i can about it and practicing it as well as I can. Um, and so, like bedside manner, this is some things that I still, you know, could, and I think maybe all of us, you know, have some room to develop in our own way. And so I thought that was really cutting, interesting. Cutting, cutting, cutting down on like swear words used in consultations and stuff like that. Actually, I have uh, <laughs> clients who regularly request if they can swear. And I say, of course you can fucking swear. Okay. <laughs> Nice. Yeah, maybe if you just part of the consulting skills is just keeping it down to a minimum of like five swear words, like <laughs> not not more than that, and and only when exclaiming about upcoming transits that the client has going on. Um, <laughs> right. You never want to open up someone's solar return and go shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> You're supposed to rephrase that. You're like, it looks like you have a challenging year coming up. Oh, this um, looks really rough. <laughs> yeah. Um, or, or euphemisms that that could be a whole class actually in and of itself. There should be like an advanced astrology class on like euphemisms that astrologers have to use to like delicately present. The three of know. us. Let's make it. Let's do it. Yeah. Let's go. Okay. All right. That'll be the next episode. Um, <laughs> all right. So we're getting a whole thing about certification, which I hadn't thought about, and just the role of astrology interface in the future. Definitely, all that's going to become relevant. That's something I've talked about as well over the past year or two of nervousness just because we saw such a huge influx of astrologers and a huge popularity of astrology somebody just sent me something a couple days ago saying that like like starbucks is going to start like integrating astrology to calculate your drink order or something like that that you can like put in your zodiac sign and it'll tell you like what starbucks drink best suits you um so obviously astrology has really hit a peak in popularity in terms of our current time frame and so it's natural that at some point probably um we'll start seeing some pushback against that and i could imagine seeing um you know because the skeptic movement also has fallen apart over the past decade compared to 
you know the 2000s when it was much more um sort of vigorous and much more had much more vitality um so i'm sure we'll see a rise in that at some point we've also seen it's been interesting recently like on twitter seeing some of the younger astrologers having to like police themselves when there are sometimes astrologers just saying like wild random stuff that like doesn't really have any basis in astrology as far as i can tell and getting followings um from that and then seeing how some of the younger astrologers are trying to like push back against that or say like no that's not okay or this isn't actually astrology or what have you and that's that's part of that that issue where sometimes the certification discussions start coming in at that point as well yeah and that's kind of what i was getting at of the the importance of a saturnian element when it comes to um i don't know if regulating is the right word but for us to maybe self-regulate ourselves in a way um because the other the other thing i wanted to mention is accessibility i think that's another criticism of certification um is how much it costs to get certified and um yeah like some of the requirements by some of these larger organizations um of what it takes to become certified and so i know that that was one of the criticisms that this recent wave of astrology um sort of held as important was that you know like maybe certification isn't the route for everyone and do you need to get certified um to be a good astrologer and we already said no you don't you don't have to but it might be a good idea you know as we head into the saturn and pisces and um something i've been seeing a lot since i'm pretty active on instagram is the instagram scammer and i've started to see um you know one of my colleagues one of my friends heard a rumor that someone they went to school with was saying oh did you hear about so and so this is how they run their business like they're posing as an astrologer and they're scamming people so in other words unless you know that this is happening within our community you might think that we're all trying to hustle um and like get donations for like bunk readings and stuff like that through dms and of course we know that that's not how we operate we know that we have higher standards for ourselves um in all the ways but to the outside world they don't necessarily know that that just because you're an astrologer (laughs) doesn't like they don't understand that we're mathematicians and um historians and astronomers and all of that they there's a good chunk of people out there that think that yeah we're just scamming people still and that's a reality yeah Yeah. i mean there's someone out there who received a message from who what they who they thought was chris brennan uh saying what grand rising Uh, what was that chris you, someone was impersonating you right and like uh, they, dming they're, people they were opening by saying like hello beloved which is not <laughs> normally a phrase i would ever utter especially as, as an opening line <laughs> I, I i keep that restricted to our private conversations yeah, Patrick. Okay. Like, yeah, yeah yeah sorry sorry for yeah um it's a, it's i just right, thought beloved. that was one of the funniest things i've ever seen um yeah. yeah generally an astrologer will not just contact you out of the blue in your dms like that uh to solicit services i feel like that's a pretty sketchy move um but if you didn't know 
then you would just maybe assume that that's you know how astrologers conduct business so that's i think Mm -hmm. you are making a really great point catherine that like the the positive side of this saturn neptune conjunction could be a movement towards you know raising the standard of 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 the field and to kind of create effective barriers against this you know this uh nefarious element that is trying to sort of glom off of uh astrology and astrologers so um that reminds me that you'd mentioned like the previous one the previous saturn neptune conjunction which is in the late late 80s or early 90s and um that reminds me of kepler kepler college which was formed in the early 90s and part of their explicit motivation for forming it from the founder was that there was a bunch of anti-astrology laws that were being put in place in Washington, and the the conundrum that astrologers found themselves in was basically either we need to self-police ourselves and start setting up better standards in order to distinguish who's actually doing astrology versus who's not, or those are going to be imposed on us on us from external forces of like you know external um, organizations that are, are going to be set up in order to police astrologers that are going to do. A much worse job at it than if we set up some internal standards ourselves, and that's what that ended up being the basis and the genesis of the foundation of Kepler College, um, which in its initial incarnation was set up as a degree program, um, a college level astro- courses on on astrology essentially. Um, so that consequently is also where I learned chart calculation, where the entire first year of Kepler was just learning the history of astrology. But right away in the first term of the second year, you learned the basics of astrology, but you also had to learn chart calculation. Um, so I learned how to calculate charts by hand then. And um, there was actually a book that was written um, that is still around and that I still recommend today is like the best book that you can get if you want to learn chart calculation. And it's titled um, Simply Math, A Comprehensive Guide to Easy and Accurate Chart Calculation. By Lauren Folks and Lynn Ceylon. So this was actually originally, uh, it was written by a couple of Kepler students as their senior project because um, they learned chart calculation from however Kepler was teaching at the time, and they said, you know, this could be done more easily. Let's put it together into a book. And so they wrote, wrote a book and then later published it. Um, and that book is available on Amazon, and it's it's something I'll, I'll link to it in the description that I recommend to everyone. Um, it's not the only book that you need if you want to learn how to calculate charts by hand. You need to get a few other books to get the correct tables and, and the math and things like that. Like Patrick's holding up an ephemeris, uh, for example, and we'll get into what those books are in just a minute. But oh, okay. this, this is the book that will tell you what books you need to get, and then it'll tell you all the steps you need to take in order to calculate a chart by hand. So that's one option. If you're like a book person, I would highly recommend that book. Um, if you're more of a video tutorial person, then I would highly recommend Catherine's workshop, which I'll link to um, directly in the description, which again, what was the title again? Chart Calculations for the Apocalypse. Okay. And yeah, and that's an amazing <laughs> eight-hour workshop, video workshop. Um, or if you want to be you know, super comprehensive, just get both. And that way, if there is like a, a solar flare or like an EMP that like wipes out everyone's computers and the internet then you'll you'll have the fallback of the book to to work with there actually is a giant solar flare coming at the end of this week apparently i just read in the news today oh good just in time or what if 
yeah, chat GTP just takes over and gets too powerful <laughs> <Right>. and <laughs> kicks right. us all out of the internet. <laughs> yeah, totally. Like Skynet takes over. And so, I mean, those scenarios are relevant because let's talk about, we've talked about like certification as a motivation, but, and I know some of it was like a little tongue in cheek with like the title of your lecture. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, but let's talk about some of those other scenarios just briefly of like, what are some other reasons that somebody might want to learn chart char calculation? And that's kind of one of them is, you know, society has changed so rapidly over the past 30 or 40 years with the advent of first computers and then the internet and then and eventually also mobile devices and then you know god god knows what after this ai is starting to come out virtual reality and augmented reality is starting to really heat up this year uh apple's about to release their own virtual reality device so who knows where it's going but one of them is just we're kind of just assuming technology will always continue to be there and continue to be ever present in our lives as it has been over the past 30 years. But, uh, you know, I had like a power outage in my building the other day where the power was just like gone in my part of the city for like an entire day. And, um, yeah, there was no like turning on the computer and like opening up solar fire to calculate a chart. Um, I kind of like just couldn't do astrology theoretically if I didn't have access to computers or the internet. And that's while it's like a not super high likelihood scenario, it's certainly like a scenario that perhaps we could entertain for why passing down this knowledge and information and the knowledge of how to do it might be something that's useful and important, I think, right? Yeah, certainly. Yeah. I mean, um, I have been approached by a lot of students of astrology to help them pass the NCGR exam. So after teaching it, to people several times, sometimes in person, sometimes over Zoom. I was like, I just need to make this a downloadable webinar for people. Um, one, so that it's just easier for people to access. And two, so that I don't have to go through the trouble of teaching someone how to calculate a chart over Zoom ever again. Um, <laughs> so that right. was the main inspiration behind it. But I also did want it to appeal to people who maybe just wanted to learn. Um, out of curiosity, or yeah, I mean, there are plenty of people um, who choose to go live off the grid. So that's kind of what I was uh, also gearing it toward. Or, you know, doomsday preppers, they might want to learn astrology too. <laughs> yeah, totally. Like, what are the, like zombie apocalypse? Uh, what is the other ones? Like Yellowstone erupts and sends volcanic ash into the atmosphere yeah, an emp attack a solar flare you know those things would definitely be damaging to the technology <laughs> we rely on for uh, quick cut chart calculations so yeah we would definitely alien definitely invasion mm, yeah <laughs> yeah alien invasion that's a good one yeah although zombies want to eat your brains and you need do need brains so you do <laughs> that's true <laughs> that, that 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 might be the one that gets us but um yeah um, yeah so there's different scenarios like that. Um, for software programmers, obviously, they end up having to learn a lot of this. And it's been interesting seeing sometimes different programmers over the years have come to me asking questions and seeing the process of them learning all the stuff that's necessary, the math and different um, measurements that are necessary to calculate charts. So they often, you know, I guess if it's going to be passed on, if if it's not passed on anywhere else, it's going to be passed on at least through the solar or through the software programmers at this point. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, you know, I don't want to get us too off track here, but I, uh, I thought it was really interesting that this whole topic has seemingly come up as Pluto is moving from Capricorn, an Earth sign, to air, you know, Aquarius, uh, an air sign. Because I feel like, I almost feel like this has been kind of the, my, my parting gift, at least in my own personal chronology of, of uh, before embracing, you know, before like heading off into the clouds, it, literally the cloud, you know, with AI-assisted astrology that I sort of master the, the astrology from the ground up, you know, with Capricorn being an Earth sign. Um, and, uh, there's, I feel like because we seem to be on this precipice of moving towards, you know, this AI assisted, uh, AI assisted astrology, um, that maybe this is a, a good opportunity for everyone as Pluto moves back into Capricorn a couple more times to take advantage of that by, um, uh, by reacquainting ourselves with the, this, uh, more fundamental aspect of of uh, astrology uh, before we you know it's almost like earning the right to um you know use these incredible technological tools by kind of mastering the 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 basics uh by ourselves more self-sufficiently sure yeah well and, yeah. and one of the things it goes back to is just understanding it gives you a better access point and you will understand what you're doing better if you learn both the mathematics as well as the astronomy underlying what what we're doing um because you know way back even though it's true to some extent especially in the mesopotamian tradition that astronomy and astrology were intertwined and that that oftentimes the same people that were doing astron what we call astronomy today were also the same people that were doing astrology and there may not have been as much of a differentiation between them as there is today where they've just completely, you know, divided into completely separate fields over the past two thousand years. Um, I think one of the things I've always thought is that as soon as the concept of the of an ephemeris was introduced around like the fifth century BCE or so, and they and astrologers started producing ephemerides, which allowed them to calculate um, the positions of the planets uh, in the past or or in the future. Just using tables and using mathematics, I think that's the point at which astrology and astronomy started to really diverge because then the astrologers were not necessarily watching the sky in order to um, you know get the planetary positions that they were then interpreting as being relevant to life on Earth, but instead astrology started to become more of an abstract um, mathematical concept. Um, or eventually an abstract, almost like geometrical concept in terms of just looking at these two-dimensional diagrams or representations of um, the heavens, which is what we're doing with an astrological chart, is just you know taking this 3D thing in time and space and then um, smushing it down and, and putting it on a, on a chart, on a piece of paper, on a screen, or what have you. So one of the things is by learning chart calculation, you go back and you start to heal that rift between astronomy and astrology and mathematics that occurred many, many centuries ago. And to the extent that astrology is based on the study of the movement of the planets and other celestial bodies, um, the more familiar you are as an astrologer with how those different movements in astronomy work, the better your work is going to be as, as an astrologer. Like I really can't see any it's one of the few things I can think of that doesn't have any downsides. Like I don't see any downsides to astrologers 
learning how to do either the math or the astronomy behind astrology better, it seems like it has only benefits. Yeah. 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 I mean, going through and calculating, like one of the first things that you'll do when setting up a chart is, I mean, once you've got your planets calculated, you calculate the midheaven. And so trying to trying to figure out what what that formula is, I mean, you're you're calculating the midheaven. You're taking um, some of the components that that you take are basically the birth time, um, which is converted into Greenwich Mean Time. You take uh, the sidereal time, which is found in the ephemeris, um, and you take like a solar sidereal cor time correction from this book of tables here, and all of that is to basically tell you what degree of the tropical zodiac is on the midheaven and it's really cool it's really cool it's such an it's cultivated such a strong appreciation for what it took to develop something like this like you you've you can find relics of ancient books of tables um online there's there's images of them and it's pretty cool but you know, in preparing for our talk today, it got me curious, like even the creation of longitude and latitude, like coordinates, because what would happen is that for like a city, you would have a local meridian. So if you've ever calculated a chart and it'll say, it'll say the time zone up in the corner. And for the ancient, like older charts, not ancient, like from charts from like the 1800s, it'll say LMT next to the time on the chart and what that stands for is local mean time local mean time so cities would have like a meridian that ran through and um it would the clocks you know were set for like noon so everyone knew like what was relative to noon like the midheaven is basically where the sun is at noon it's the highest point in in the sky um so what went into Basically, I found out the way that time zones were created was out of necessity because when we used to travel by foot, uh, like the different times wouldn't necessarily affect travelers of the different cities. But once you got into trains and railroads, they were running into collisions because of the time snafus for when trains would go from city to city. And so what they created was a standardization of time zones. So you have 24 time zones on the globe and they're each separated by one hour. And so one of the things that you use in here is the minute, the minutes, because we know that the sun is still moving um, as we go from time zone to time zone. Um, so yeah, that standardization is kind of cool. But before we got to where we are today, there were ancient Greek mathematicians and astronomers who were trying to create coordinate systems for longitude and latitude. So back to my original point, it just cultivates such a strong appreciation for what these ancient astrologers were working with in terms of coordinates. Like you might know, you might have an ephemeris that was passed down to you from your teachers, your lineage. You might have a book of tables passed down from your teachers and in your lineage relative to your location. But what happens when you need to calculate a person's chart that was born in a different city you couldn't just plug that into a computer you had to have tables <laughs> you had to have ephemerides and or you had to know how to convert those which is a whole other thing 
Right. That raises a, a point that's really interesting that I realized as I was thinking about this and reading Patrick's article. And I don't, I don't know if you said this or if you just alluded to it, but there's this irony that charts are more accurate now than they've ever been in history. And yet, um, ironically, astrologers know the least about how they're constructed or how to construct them. <laughs> right. Yeah, um, isn't that funny? Just, it was just making me think about that, Catherine, in terms of all the things you're talking about that astrologers used to need to know how to do compared to um, what they know how to do today. And there's a certain level where it's like, that's okay. It's not a huge deal because astrology, I think, is fundamentally and primarily about the interpretation of charts. Um, and to the extent that that distinction between astronomy and astrology is still relevant today, you know, the calculation of charts really is the astronomy and the mathematics side of things, whereas it's the interpretation of celestial uh, positions and the relevance that those have to life on Earth. That interpretive act really is what, the, what astrology is and what we're focused on. Um, and also, you know, I think it's possible that even though we have this perception because there's so many famous astronomers who are also astrologers in history like Johannes Kepler or Claudius Ptolemy or others we have this perception that like all astrologers were astronomers but I don't that may not necessarily be true and I, I remember seeing some discussions in um, I think it was like a commentary by Theon of Alexandria around the fifth century the fourth or fifth century where he was explaining why he was writing a commentary on um, the handy tables, I think, which made it easier for astrologers to calculate charts quickly. And he was trying to explain why he needed to write a commentary on this. And he said it was because astrologers kept coming to him asking, you know, how they can use this to, to calculate charts. So it's like even then, the astrologers themselves may have been primarily focused on the interpretive act. And to the extent that they had to do some of the mathematical calculations, that was like a hurdle. That they had to surmount to get to that point of what the actual goal was, um, but that it may not have been <clears throat> necessarily like their favorite thing to do. The astronomy itself was was not an end unto itself for the astrologers, but it was the interpretive act that has always been the primary focus of astrologers, um, you know, itself. Mm -hmm. mm. Well, and the very calculability of the of the planets, the very fact that the the chart must be calculated and that there's an exact answer that comes out when you perform these mathematical operations is kind of what underpins the entire idea of of things being faded you know that um there is actually only one answer for where the positions were at a particular time um and that those paths of those planets are fixed and that the very fact that you can have something like an ephemeris right is is sort of evidence that there's you know some element of the world which is predetermined and thus potentially uh you know our lives as well and so that i also kind of had that realization as well as i was uh calculating all these example charts and all these practice charts that the you know there's only one solution and i was trying to get it for each one um and um yeah, that's a good point because that's the one thing you can't change. Like we can't change that like Pluto's going into Aquarius tomorrow even though I would very much like to as an Aquarius rising. <laughs> or we can't change the fact that like 20 years ago when I first started studying astrology, I knew mathematically that Pluto was going to go into Aquarius in early 2023 and then it was going to stay there for 20 years. 
that that piece is like not not negotiable and that that's an interesting point in terms of that's the faded side at the very least the faded side of astrology unless we nuked pluto right <laughs> that is true or if I'm, we nuked chiron yeah right? <laughs> I, I would like to subscribe to your newsletter um to, I would, i'd support that gofundme you know but that that does raise an interesting point like because that one of the one of the outcomes of that dot mission where we um basically chucked a rocket at that random asteroid to see if we could change its trajectory we did change its trajectory um we did change its position in the ephemeris and if you can change a planetary trajectory then can you change fate apparently with a big enough rocket you can <laughs> okay. um, with so a good that, enough that, aim that's all you have to do just that, yeah that's I mean, it? just okay. just yeah if you want to avoid a mars transit mars remediation just blow up mars yeah <laughs> right problem solved just have enough resources <laughs> yeah <laughs> right, right right i mean it's in, unfeasible but it makes you wonder like how i don't know how how fixed are planetary transits i mean i think they are pretty fixed i don't think we can obviously do anything to really actually throw it off but makes you wonder yeah yeah. Mars, maybe that's what Elon Musk is up to. It makes yeah. me think. Um, <laughs> it's his vendetta. <laughs> yeah. Right. So yeah. That's it. Let's let's circle back around um to the books that are necessary in order to calculate charts, in order to tell people like what resources they need, what materials they need to get if they want to calculate charts by hand. And there's basically like three fundamental books, right? Yeah. So you definitely need an ephemeris and yeah, you might need two of them if you have a 20th and 21st century. Um, yeah, and I would highly recommend getting the midnight editions. I know when I was in my early astrology phase, I had a noon ephemeris, and my teachers were like, no, that's, that's not going to work. So you definitely need the midnight position because that's how all the formulas for chart calculations use the midnight positions of the planets. However, so it, would add, if, it would add an extra step if you have the noon version, which just becomes kind of annoying. Yeah. I was just okay. going to say, though, however, if you did have a noon version, that could just be good if you wanted to very quickly in your head sort of roughly calculate for your particular location. But, uh, but I wouldn't recommend the noon yeah, if you're trying to actually calculate the chart exactly. Yeah. So, and, and Patrick and I did a whole episode on how to read an ephemeris back in 2021. That's in episode 304 of the Astrology Podcast, and people can Google that. You're laughing because you're the city real time thing? Well, yeah, because I, well, it's funny because my use of a site of an ephemeris early in my, my studies was just kind of, that was how I was giving kids reading at school, you know, back in high school. So I just had an ephemeris and I sort of look up the positions and I didn't have their ascendant. And we didn't really have phones in 2004, 2005. So, you know, what's, um, what's funny is like that's our version of calculating charts by hand is just having a physical book ephemeris, basically. Sure, yeah. Like that's kind of how I did it. And, and uh, yeah. I just interpret that planetary position and aspects and stuff like that. Um, but so I didn't, so my use of an ephemeris at the beginning of my studies did not involve actually using it for calculating charts by hand. And mm -hmm. so that's why I felt kind of embarrassed <laughs> after. You popped that question on me of like, what is the real times actually used for? And I'm, I didn't actually know. Uh, I, uh, you know, we, we're here to discuss how to use the ephemeris. And then here I can't explain like an entire column on every page of the, of the book. Um, now I'm grateful to say that I do understand what it's for and that they are very necessary <laughs> for calculating a chart correctly. 
But that's why I was laughing about uh, your mention of that episode, um, because that was actually one of the inciting things that made me realize that I kind of needed to up my game. And actually, it was a couple months after that that I ended up first purchasing the chart calculations for the apocalypse, but I didn't get around to it until early this year to actually use it. So uh, it's been a long time coming. This has been cooking for a while. Yeah. Yeah. What was the answer, by the way, to the city old time thing? So it measures the number of equatorial degrees you have to pass around because there's a difference between the amount of time it takes for the sun to rotate on this axis versus uh, the amount of time it takes for the uh, for for a whole day to occur relative to the sun. There's like a four minute difference, so it's sort of accounting for that uh, difference in time. Yeah. So the the sidereal day is basically like um, like. There's a four minute difference between like, so sidereal, obviously it refers to the stars. So there's like a four minute difference between a sidereal day and a solar day. So one way that you can really see that with your chart software, ironically, is if you're in the animate function in solar fire and you're clicking through by day, but you keep the time the same and you'll see that that we know in astrology that the midheaven is going to move one degree every four minutes. So what you'll see is that four minute lag showing up as the one degree on the midheaven, which is interesting because if you go to the um, autumn equinox in your ephemeris, um, you know, these are all the midnight positions of the planets. You got to think the sun is down at the IC. So what's going to be up on the midheaven is zero Aries. So that's why you're going to see zero because zero sidereal is going to equate with the where the aries equinox occurs so basically from a tropical standpoint that is going to be the intersection of the ecliptic the path of the sun and the celestial equator which is basically the equator of the earth projected outward so those equinox points are basically where you have the ecliptic and um, intersecting the celestial equator. So that's what that sidereal time basically is, is it's showing us um, the difference on a day-to-day, those stars being in the same position. So that's why the stars are changing position on a daily basis for us. Got by it. one degree. Okay. Yeah. That's a better explanation. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Nicely done. That's also why, that, then that also explains why a secondary progress chart, the midheaven moves about one degree every year okay yeah 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 so all right so ephemeris people this is the fundamental probably most important book that everyone needs to get for chart calculation is an ephemeris because the ephemeris will tell you where the planets are in the signs of the zodiac it'll tell you what sign of the zodiac a planet is on any day of the year um either in the past or in the future and it'll tell you what degree um of the zodiac each of the planets is in in its individual sign um, at the start of each day, and that's why you're getting the midnight ephemeris because it it shows you where the planet is by sign and by degree and minute um, at the very start of the day, basically, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's going to show you the midnight position of of all the planets, and that sidereal time. If you convert it into zodiacal degrees, it's going to show you what's on the midheaven at midnight, um, and that's pretty standard per location. Because no matter where you are on the globe by longitude, um, you're going to have the same midheaven. And Got if it. you, yeah, and while we're on that topic, 
if you're on the same latitude, you're going to have the same ascendant. But yeah, so. Cool. Okay. So, and in terms of options, um, there's a few different options for ephemerises. We, the standard one at this point is like the, is called the American ephemeris, and there's a few different versions of it. Um, a good, probably starter one at this point that covers most of the dates that you would need would be the American ephemeris for 1950 to 2050 at midnight. And it says it's titled the Trans Century Edition by Neil Mickelson and Rick Pottinger. So um, this one will work as long as the charts that you're trying to calculate are between 1950 and 2050, because those are the years and basically covered in this ephemeris. If that doesn't work, or if you need to calculate charts either from before 1950 or after 2050, then you might have to get a different version of the ephemeris. Like there is a, uh, for example, there's the new American ephemeris for the 20th century, 1900 to 2000 at midnight, also by Pottinger and Mickelson. And that'll give you all of the years in the 20th century and all the months and days in the 20th century. If there's anybody, you know, earlier in the century that you're trying to calculate a chart for by hand. Um, and then I know there's other variations, but basically they're all just different variations of, um, different time frames, I think, right? Yeah. There's also uh, free PDFs of the of the ephemerides from like I think it's like nine thousand years available on uh, Astro.com, and uh, uh, while you wouldn't be able to access that in the event of an apocalypse, that's why I guess you could maybe I don't know ask for it to be like you can have the PDF printed out and bound like at Staples or something <laughs> um, to have it as like a a, a book uh, in book format. But yeah. There's yeah. a few ways to get hold of it. That would That's be a, a huge one. book. <laughs> yeah, nine thousand right. years. <laughs> yeah, maybe set up in volumes or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is a good free alternative. The um, just do a Google search for Astro Dean's ephemeris, and they have a bunch of different ephemeris files that you can pull up, and it lets you download them as a PDF. So I think for the purpose of doing chart calculation, though. Yeah. As long as you're trying to calculate it for years between the 20th century and like the first half of the 21st century, you're probably better off getting a print ephemeris because I think most of the instructions that you're going to find um, for calculating charts are going to be based on using the American ephemeris or, or, or something pretty close to it, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, the data, I guess, is fundamentally the same. I just, I'm trying to think of if there's anything that might throw people off because I know for sure, like the Simply Math book uses the American ephemeris or recommends that. Um, I know you can adapt it to other ephemerises, but I'm just trying to think if there's anything that might be missing or added or different in an American ephemeris versus uh, the Swiss ephemeris. Well, I would say the American ephemeris is potentially a little more accurate to the minute because um, I just looked at the uh, astro.com ephemerides and they only list the degree position and the uh, minute rounded to the nearest minute, whereas in the American Ephemeris, they'll have the position of the planet, they'll have the degree position listed, the minute with along with a decimal. So, for example, it will say Jupiter's at 23 Scorpio 58.3 minutes, whereas mm. in the on the Astro.com PDFs, it will only say uh, Jupiter's at 23 degrees Scorpio in 58 minutes. So that 0.3 could potentially make a difference, you know. 
that would be um uh that would be 18 minutes uh, sorry 18 Woo! seconds right well <laughs> three times six everyone <laughs> um yeah you you would just multiply that number by by six to get the sexagesimal but the it's um so yeah you do get technically get slightly more precise uh planetary positions um through the american ephemeris Okay, got it. And the American ephemeris, to clarify, also is not just for Americans. Like anybody can use that internationally. It just happens to be called the American ephemeris for some reason, right? Yeah, as far colonialism. As I know. Yeah, capitalism. Yes. That's it. Okay. Yeah, kind of, kind of like how we measure all longitudes by GMT. You know why? Because the British Empire. That's why. Um, you know, I wish there were a less, yeah, imperial. Yeah, it's, it's, we need to decolonize, uh, coordinates, but you know, that's another topic for another time. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the greatest travesty from that is that they force us to pronounce it as Greenwich, even though there's a W in that word. And I will never, <laughs> I will yeah. never get over, get over that. Also kind of <laughs> hilarious is that the place um, the place in Greenwich that marks the zero point line is actually off by like several miles uh, oh, really? because we found out with GPS technology that the place actually like, you know, built like a whole monument to the fact that this is the zero point line is actually completely off. So oh my God. that's also kind of funny. Like you can take photos at, you know, the, the touristy place they set up, you know, for people to you know, find the zero, the zero points of GMT, but it's actually, yeah. That's so funny. <laughs> it's, uh, how, it's a little how bit do you, How is this word pronounced? Greenwich. Greenwich. I, I will not, I cannot, <laughs> I'll not, never get on board with that. Not Greenwich. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It will always be Greenwich in my heart. <laughs> All right. So, um, ephemeris, first thing you need to get, everyone needs to get an ephemeris. And ephemeris, even if you're not learning to calculate charts by hand, as Patrick and I discussed like extensively in the whole episode dedicated to that, it's good to like familiarize yourself and learn how to read an ephemeris just in and of itself, and it will give access, give you access to a different and more unique and in-depth perspective on um, the movements of the planets by learning how to read one. So that's a really good starting point as an ephemeris. What's the second book that you need in order to calculate charts by hand? You got to get yourself a book of tables. Okay. Book of <laughs> tables. Why do we need a book of tables? Um, the tables are how you get um, the midheaven, the ascendant. And if you're using intermediary cusps, um, like you would for the NCGR exam, um, that is going to tell you how to find those in here as well. And this, this book, the Mickelson Book of Tables, it will give you tables for Placidus as well as Coke. Okay, so Placidus and Coke tables. So it's titled The Mickelson Book of Tables uh, by Neil Mickelson and Rick Pottinger, Coke and Placidus Tables of Houses and How to Cast a Natal Horoscope, Interpolation Tables and Timetables. So this is primarily if you want to calculate um, Placidus and Coke houses, but it also gives you some things that are necessarily necessary or useful, even if you don't, right? Yeah, there's cool things in the book as well. Um, yeah, there's. Let's see here. There well, you is could use it for the midheaven and ascendant at the very least. Yeah. So you know that's that's what I was thinking. So is that is it a requirement for that, or is it just like something you could do? 
You mean just like leaving out the other house cusps? Right. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, you, it would just be a lot less um, tiny little calculations you would have to do. It would just, you would just calculate the midheaven and then you would go through the same process and just calculate the ascendant there. But it's, it's the same process for sure. Yeah, I just need the latitude difference for the ascendant rather than the midheaven. Yeah. It's one extra step, basically, for the ascendant. Yes. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So get the table of houses to calculate the ascendant, midheaven, and other house cusps, essentially. Yeah. And you can also get um, tables of houses for all of the different house systems on astro.com as well. And they also have more detailed ones, because one of the interesting things about the Mickelson Book of Tables is that the entries for each local sidereal time are separated by four minutes. So astro.com actually has one that is separated by each minute, um, which is really kind of insane. Uh, so it's a really, really thick book uh, if you were to print it off. Um, but uh, that I, the astro.com ones are a little more precise for the midheaven. They have the midheaven down to the second, but the uh, Mickelson tables have it down to just the minute rounded to the minute. So in that particular case, it's flipped. Astro.com is slightly more precise than the Mickelson book of tables. But you don't want to use the Astro.com tables if you're taking Catherine's course, because otherwise it won't make sense, because the interpolations are thrown off. You have to be using the ones which are four minutes apart. Good to know. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know that information about <laughs> Astro.com. Got it. So is this so this is another instance where <clears throat> basically there's there's like the paid version of of buying the books, um, which is sort of the standard approach, but there are there are free alternatives for both of these two steps so far with the Astrodienst uh ephemeris and tables. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's good to know. Um and then let's see, tables. One thing that's interesting about this as a side note with the books of tables is um you know, these are these books of tables that astrologers have used over the past century for calculating house cusps or quadrant house cusps. Um, they simplify, it's basically a shortcut because it simplifies the math of doing this so that you don't have to do the more advanced and like complicated math that's necessary in order to calculate, for example, Placidus um, house cusps, which is, I believe, is one of the more advanced. Um, or at least com- complex mathematically, like house systems, essentially, right? Um, in, so I thought that it was. Go ahead. I was just going to say in the in the beginning of the of the book, they have that direct method of calculation available. If you want to go just super sane with this, <laughs> um, you can uh, you can learn the logarithms um, to directly calculate them without needing a, the tables of houses. But I'd recommend just using the tables of houses just so that you know you're uh, yeah. on the right track. Well, and I just I bring it up because it's interesting because even calculating things quote unquote by hand, um, astrologers in the 20th century were still using shortcuts. Basically, mm-hmm. a table of houses is a shortcut for calculating the house cusps accurately without having to because it it kind of like pre-calculates some of the more advanced mathematics for you. Essentially, I think yeah. is what it's doing, right? Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, they what they have is basically like um, where where everything would be relative to latitude, 
And um, yeah, so basically you just need to know latitude and this is just set up so that you can just sort of, um, yeah, I mean, without going through the whole process, like interpolate between, yeah, you have, yeah, there's, it's kind of hard to explain, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, they have okay. it set up so that if you know your longitude and latitude, you can figure it out. Mm -hmm. Also, it. one thing you should know about latitude too is on the astro.com tables of houses, they will actually list every degree of latitude because um, in the Mickelson tables, they kind of skip, they jump uh, five degrees of latitude for the first few degrees because the difference is like negligible. But if you want yeah. those absolutely precise ones, then you can look at the, the astro.com tables of houses that list every single degree. Um, wouldn't help you in an apocalypse, but um, yeah. So it's, again, it's true. Although even yeah, it so it does skip like by fives for like the like from zero latitude to twenty, but the interpolation still works. works you just yeah. might be off by um like a couple minutes instead of yeah, one minute. It's a small small difference. Yeah. Got it. Okay, so uh, tables of houses for calculating the ascendant, midheaven, and the house cusps. Um, and then I guess if you, they don't have other public, like this is their only table of houses is for Placidus and Coke, right? Mickelson, they don't publish other tables, I don't believe. So you'd have to go to Astro Dean's for, for that. You're saying, Patrick, that they have other tables for whatever system you want to use. Yeah, they have Placidus Alcabitius. Is that how you say it? Alcabitius, sure. uh, uh, Camp Anus. Uh, <laughs> Regiumont Anus, um, Stripati, Velo, uh, Cotta's Polyequatorial, Equal, Hari uh, Krasinski, Pisa, Golza. I mean, yeah, like the whole gamut. Got of, it. So uh, basically, yeah. anything that they calculate themselves on their website, which is like most of the major different systems, they will give you tables for. So that's good to know. Um, yeah, okay, com so com Campanus and Regimontanus, right? Yeah. Uh, I just like <laughs> saying them in the ridiculous way, that's all. Yeah, that's, that's good. Gotta, gotta uh, give people their money's worth, Chris. <laughs> <right>. <laughs> um, so that's the second book that you need is a table of houses, and then the third book that you need is a time zone atlas, right? Yeah, if you really want to go, go granola, you gotta do the atlas. <laughs> And this will show you the time zones, and it will also specify for you where each um, each state, if you're looking at an American atlas, or um, each country, if you're looking at the international one, does things like daylight savings time or war time. It'll tell you how long those lasted in there, too. And it'll also give you exact coordinates of longitude and latitude. So having one of these is necessary if you're going to go all the way yeah, yeah although it should also be noted that unfortunately you know a book can only contain the information that goes up to the time it was printed and so there is True. a slight issue where if once you get beyond a certain point like i've seen i think the latest entry i saw in there was like 2000 maybe um okay. so it's okay. unfortunate in that respect if you're you know a 2000s baby then you won't be able to use those reference texts um to find the exact uh, time that uh, someone might have started or stopped 
or the particular time they might have started using daylight saving time. Really, daylight saving time has been a scourge uh, <laughs> for astrologers. And so if you really if if you still have access to a computer, then the best place probably to go to find time zone change information would be uh, timeanddate.com. Um, mm -hmm. So for every location, basically every major location on Earth, they have like a whole section on that page on the daylight saving time changes and when they happened. And, and uh, I wish we could get a printed version of that somewhere. But, you know, anytime you print it up, it could still change in the future. I know that there's just been recent attempts in Florida to try to, um, you know, make daylight saving time permanent. And I'm not sure what the status is of those attempts now, but you know, these things can change in the future and they're really, really annoying. So um, not sure what to do about that, but this is still really useful for most charts that you'd want to calculate for most people who are currently alive. Yeah. That would be so messed up if they just kept daylight savings time. They need to just get rid of it. <laughs> I know. Well, I was, I was talking to somebody about this the other day and they had some like historical statement I'd never heard before, but do either, either of you know why daylight savings exists? I forget the motivation originally. Yeah, supposedly it was so that um, they could get like, like between because daylight savings time begins in the springtime. It begins, I think, on the second Sunday in March, and it's so that you know we're getting um, more daylight during like like what we would think of as waking hours, so that people could be more productive in the fields and farming, basically. Okay. Yeah, I just looked it up and it says um, implemented in the US in 1918, a wartime measure for seven months during World War One in the interest of adding more daylight hours to conserve energy resources. So you know, it's not enough to have just had an alternate schedule for that time. No, change the entirety of time. You know, <laughs> to to fix this issue, I don't. I'm not. I don't know why we couldn't just do like seasonal hours for things. Uh, sorry for popping off, but yeah. it's just uh, it's 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 quite annoying. I don't know why we couldn't just have why businesses and schools or governments or whatever can just decide their own kind of seasonal hours um, for things. I don't. It doesn't need to be six a.m. for the sun to be rising. Like I think people are just attached to this idea that the number on the clock must necessarily coincide with a particular time of the day and. I don't know, that doesn't make any sense to me, but in any I, case. <laughs> I wonder what was going on with Saturn when that was happening. Was there like a Saturn-Uranus square opposition going on? <laughs> I, don't know. Yeah. I don't know. So, so and why this is important with time zone changes, which is the primary thing that this book helps with, or it's one of the primary things, but while it's annoying and everybody has the universal experience, every human of when daylight savings time happens and the clock either jumps forward an hour or it falls back an hour, depending on what part of the year you're in, that that can be kind of like, you know, offsetting or unsettling for like a day or two or something or can, you know, rearrange your sleep schedule. But for astrologers, it's actually a real nightmare when you're trying to calculate charts because it means unless you know for sure whether daylight savings time was in effect or was not in effect, your chart could be off by basically like an hour, basically in either direction. Oh my God. I have a scary, sorry. Go ahead, Chris. So it can completely throw off the ascendant and the midheaven and all of the house placements. Um, if you do not accurately know whether daylight savings time was in effect or not. And the problem with it is that it changes 
um, from location to location and time frame to time frame and whether it was recognized or not recognized and, and different things like that. And that's the primary thing that the atlas, the time zone atlas is useful for. I had a scary, scary situation um, mm. where daylight savings time was threatening some things for me. I was um, in Mexico. My husband and I decided that we were going to not involve our families and we were going to get married. And I had elected a chart for us. And I didn't know that Mexico did daylight savings time. And we were like, it was like oh, the no. day that we were getting married. And I had to like check multiple different websites to make sure that I was still going to get the chart I elected. <laughs> wow. That, that, that's such an astrologer problem, like almost nearly coming close to catastrophe because of daylight savings time or something. It, it's peak astrologer. Yeah. yeah. It was a nightmare. <laughs> right. Wow. Astrologer nightmares. I was yeah. a bridezilla about what time it was. <laughs> I love that. Astrology. Yeah. That's the astrology version of bridezilla. That's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. <clears throat> um, all right. Well, but you were able to like get it within the same rising sign or something roughly or adjust it? Yes. I was able to confirm. Um, I was able to make sure that we were still going to get the chart. And I still to this day double check it on software because sometimes software doesn't um, catch up. Like we just had daylight savings time, ironically, as the sun conjoined Neptune in the sky. And my solar fire was not adjusting the time. Um, for a little I've noticed bit. that especially when you use the transit animator on Solify that it right. will like sometimes you have to kind of reset it if it goes past a time change so gotta be really careful to make sure that auto DST is enabled um, yeah. I gotta yeah. say that was one thing I actually really liked about living in Arizona where they don't observe daylight saving um, so it's been kind of a, an adjustment since I've moved out to the head of the Midwest um, finally having to deal with this again <laughs> I had about 10 years of of not having to worry about it in Arizona. Like Arizona and um, uh, Sonora, the Mexican state directly below it, they don't do daylight saving. So it's kind of an astrologer's paradise though. Oh yeah, okay. that would be. <laughs> so that's really important and that's why the time zone atlas is important because you can't take it for granted that daylight savings is always in effect or not in effect and you need to know what the record was in that specific location and what astrologers have done with especially the printed with the ACS atlas, I believe is yeah it's published by ACS. So it's called. I didn't. There's two books basically that you have to get, or at least at Kepler they made us get both books. Um, the primary one, if you're living in the U.S., it's titled the American Atlas Expanded Fifth Edition um, by Thomas G. Shanks, um, and then the second one is if you want to calculate charts outside of the U.S. You need to go get a book titled The International Atlas, expanded sixth edition, or I don't know what edition it's in right now. Actually, it looks kind of out of print. I'm kind of Use nervous about thrift books. Yes. <laughs> Use, <laughs> Use yeah. thrift books. Do not use Amazon for this. Obviously, do not do not spend five hundred dollars on that book. Uh, <laughs> do not. <laughs> there are other websites at the um, thrift books. What what are some other ones? Alibris. Uh, Alibris. I think I Abe Abe Books is another one. Mm, okay. ABE. Yeah. Um, so yeah, definitely shop around for that if you if you tempted to buy it. Um, you'll so get it's a kind much of cheaper. Disturbing or unfortunate that it's out of print. Hopefully that comes back into print at some point for all of us astrology preppers and and doomsday preparers. 
Yeah. ACS um, Atlas does still maintain a database and you can buy that data. You can like buy a license to use that database if you're developing astrological software. It's pretty expensive though. Um, so um, I forget exactly how much, but I remember I looked in, in, into it one time and I was like, okay, <laughs> can't afford that. Uh, so that's kind yeah. of unfortunate, but it is still being maintained. So for any new astrological software that comes out that the probably have a license to use that database by ACS. And so, you know, we are still getting good information, at least through right. software. Yeah. That's good to well, know. And I think that's why this is out of print because it's everything's moved to computerized, so they maybe haven't seen the need to keep that in print. But um so important point about that though is that um with the rise of computers from basically from the nineteen seventies and eighties forward Time zone changes have been documented pretty well by computers because it's something that's really important to keep track of with computers, to keep everything in sync, um, but it's also, especially with the rise of the internet, something that's easier to keep track of with computers, where it's pretty easy to know like if a place was recognizing daylight savings time or if it wasn't on a specific time frame, and that's pretty well documented over the past few decades. But if you go further back before computers, like before the 1970s and 1980s, I always remember a friend of mine who was programming a software program at the time said that um, some of the databases that, that record time zone changes become less and less accurate. And that's one of the reasons why ACS's Atlas at the time was the best, because astrologers had been so proactive about going back and researching um, times from the first half of the 20th century and determining whether daylight savings time was in effect or whether it wasn't, as well as some of the unique and special rules that occurred in certain loca- in some locations during different time frames. Like I know yeah. one of the ones that was a real hassle was Chicago, yes. where there, there was something bizarre in Chicago where it was like something like daylight savings time was in effect, but it was not supposed to be recorded on birth certificates or like something weird like that Do you know what it was yeah i've encountered this with clients before too i've had uh, i've had believe it or not like two people come to me um born in chicago in the 50s i think it was like in the late 50s where and solar fire will give you a warning it says warning yeah. <laughs> birth times were being recorded uh even though daylight savings time was in fact they were being recorded as if it wasn't in standard time so I've actually yeah. had two clients say, hey, I have two birth times. And so I had to sit there and kind of do the math and figure out, you know, which one was the person's actual birth time. And yeah, it, it, it's hard because you have to figure out which is which, and then you have to figure out which is the real one. <laughs> so then you're like rectifying on the spot in some cases. But yeah. yeah. You get a similar yeah. warning flash up for some times and locations in Indiana as well interesting um and sometimes if the person isn't born in like a proper city if it's like a administrative division or something then it sort of depends almost county to county whether they were observing the state rule or which one in some cases like indiana where it was split in two so you start really can you just get in the weeds with this stuff so i'm just so glad that like software is still there for us yeah yeah that's really crucial and and, and also basically anytime somebody um, runs into an issue nowadays where they go to a website or they use a certain program to calculate their chart and it comes out one way 
but then they go somewhere else and they calculate the chart and it comes out looking different. Usually the reason is a time zone issue where um, one of those sites is calculating daylight savings time and, and thinking that it was in effect, and the other is saying that it wasn't for some reason. So then basically you end up, the, the, the person or the client ends up needing to have to research that and trying to figure out what actually was historically the case when they were born. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, if I'm ever having trouble with that, I tend to reference between like Astrodienst and uh, Solifier. Those are kind of my two points of reference. And I tend to trust astro.com um, some, sometimes over Solifier. Yeah, well, both of those, I believe both of them use the ACS Atlas yeah. um, or did at one point. So they're, they're both going to tend to be on the same page for the most part. Mm-hmm. And those two are going to be the most accurate in terms of um, generations of astrologers putting a lot of research into the um, time zone changes in the 20th century. So if usually when in doubt, if like Astrodienst and, and SolarFire are telling you one thing, but another website is telling you something else, usually it's the other website that's going to be wrong. Mm-hmm. So funny thing, though, a controversy that came up about 10 years ago is that um, there's some like modern um, databases, time zone databases. There's one, I think there's one primary one that um, most computer systems follow or are based on to track time zone changes at this point, as well as historical changes. And at one point, they started incorporating data from the ACS atlas into their um, their time zone atlas or database and there was a a lawsuit between the astrology software company that owns acs and this other um group of programmers or whatever it was that was taking data from acs and incorporated into theirs and it actually became kind of like a public spat at the time and some of the headlines were not super favorable for astrologers because the argument became whether ACS could, the astrologers could copyright um, the data or the research that they had done in order to establish like when, um, when daylight savings was in effect historically in different areas or whether that information was by virtue of, of being like a public record, whether it was open source and ev- eventually the company, the astrology software company lost. And I think it sort of like went away but it was a funny little thing that occurred i think about a decade ago Hmm. i seem to remember hearing about that i don't know if you mentioned it on the podcast or or not but yeah interesting yeah Yeah. well it was just it it was not spun in like a positive way for the astrologers and um because it looks like the withholding of public you know public information uh yeah you're never gonna turn out too well if you do that Right. Yeah, it was because I think it was the astrologers that like issued the lawsuit, but then they lost and debate about whether that was a good idea or whether it made astrologers look bad. Certainly the headlines didn't make it look super good. But well, you um, still have to pay them a lot of money <laughs> if you want to license it for your software. So they I'm not sure uh, on what basis they, they get to do that if they lost that lawsuit, but I, I would need to know the details, I guess. Well, I mean, yeah, they, anybody can license their own program and, and stuff, um, and people can license other time zone atlases, but I think usually, it's like when, when other programmers have come to me periodically, I tell them usually just to license the ACS atlas because it's the most accurate one, and that I don't know if 
the other open source ones have have fully and accurately integrated some of the weird time zone rules that existed in like the 1940s in Chicago or wherever as ACS has just because the issues that astrologers have had are so much more um like that's such a pertinent issue for astrologers that they put a lot more emphasis on making sure that that's correct I think than others yeah. might and, I would trust you know. an astrologer <laughs> over uh, over a non-astrologer on that. Yeah, the the stakes are higher. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So anyway, so get an atlas, uh, a time zone atlas. There's other like one other thing is that all the time zone atlas does it does other things as well, right? Doesn't it give you like the longitude? It yeah. Gives, yeah. It's been like almost 20 years. I should have said that at the beginning. Like I learned how to do chart calculation at Kepler in 2005, 2006. I calculated several charts by hand successfully. And then I promptly like forgot how to do most of that and have not refreshed how myself. So I'm, yeah, I know. Well, that's what, that's what you two are here for. Cause you're the two experts at this point that are helping I'm me too. I'm a noob. I just <laughs> right. learned this from her. But it's yeah. so fresh on your mind. Yeah, You've been yeah. practicing. So <laughs> right. you might be sharper so than me at I, this point. I'm coming, I'm coming at this with the, the zoo, the zeal of a noob. Um, but, uh, the other thing that it gives you is the precise longitude, which you, I found out you can actually calculate from the degrees and minutes of longitude. Um, for the location. So you don't actually need to have that column. You can just calculate it, but they give it to you and it's convenient to do. Yeah. The longitudinal correction, right? Yes. Yeah. Cool. That's cool that you figured that out. <laughs> Only because Bruce Schofield told me, hey, did you know you could, because I wanted, I wanted to know if I could bring the Atlas to the exam. And I was like, uh, I'm going to need the Atlas in order to find the longitudinal correction. He's like, but we give you the longitude. I'm like, but I don't know how to do that. And he's like, Google it. <laughs> um, yeah, so you just uh, yeah, you multiply the minute the you multiply the degrees of longitude by thirty six hundred. You multiply the minutes of longitude by sixty. You add those together to get a number of seconds, and then you divide those by fifteen, and then divide by thirty six hundred, and then convert into degrees again. And boom, you have that same figure. So thankfully, Whoa. the atlas tells you that in ahead. Of, you know, so you don't have to do that calculation. But it's pretty. It's like two seconds on a calculator. Cool. Um, I forgot that that's actually another chart calculation book. Um, I haven't used it, but it might be useful for some people. Uh, but Bruce Schofield has a book titled Astrological Chart Calculations, an Outline of Conventions and Methodology. Mm -hmm. um, so that's another option for, yeah, just uh, chart calculation and different books that go over and, and will teach you how to do this. Mm -hmm. All right. So are those other things, there's like other probably like little miscellaneous things. Um, obviously, we've mentioned having a little hand calculator can be useful and can speed things up, although it's not entirely necessary. Um, you know, it's very helpful. Also, maybe, you know, like a protractor and a compass or something like that in terms of like actually drawing the chart on a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Nice. And um, a pencil pencils as well you need pencils and scrap paper because you're gonna make mistakes yeah a lot of paper and then uh maybe some some colored pencils maybe some glitter a little spice things up a little bit with the actual chart here's, diagram here's my practice these is this is just half the pile of my papers. practice papers yeah nice. 
Yeah. <laughs> oh, and I just wanted to clear up that Bruce Schofield didn't actually tell me to Google it. Uh, he just said, we gave you the longitude. And so then I Googled it and, and realized, oh, you can just calculate it from the longitude. So that's why I wouldn't need the atlas. But um, yeah, I just realized it made it sound like he had told me to Google it and he didn't. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, he's like, get lost, kid. <laughs> no, he was very um, humble. Yeah, I've got okay. all my scrap paper from learning. <laughs> nice. Crazy. All right. So all that being said, so with those three books in terms of the, the ephemeris, the table of houses, and the time zone atlas, with those three books, you can calculate a chart by hand and that's essentially all you need right yeah and patience patience okay yeah yeah all those qualities um yeah uh, practice like but but it's something that once you oh, and do the it- money <laughs> for the money for uh for buying those books and i would also say about the about the test the cost of tests and stuff the ncgr one was like 60 and then there's like a $30 proctoring fee. So there, it's not like outrageous. The, the ESAW courses are a bit more expensive. There are like several hundred dollars altogether. Um, so there is that, I understand there is that kind of barrier of cost. But as we tried to point out at several points, uh, there are several free resources available as well to learn how to do this. And um, Yeah, and the, and the courses or the certification is only if you want like a certificate yeah, if you want to do if, that if, optional if you yeah. want to get like a award for learning how to calculate charts by hand um but if you just want a pat on the back and uh you know then you can just get the books and learn how to do it by hand or yeah use some of the free resources especially on astrodeans that we've mentioned and um i mentioned that book by bruce schofield of course the f- first one i mentioned was the simply math book which is technically like a fourth book that I would recommend getting because that tells you the steps of exactly how to use those three books to calculate charts. But other than that, if you have all of that, then that's usually all you need in order to calculate charts by hand. And then at that point, you can just go go crazy calculating everyone's charts. Oh, yeah. <laughs> go wild. <laughs> You'll be the centerpiece at all parties, like the most popular person at all parties from that point forward. It's a good you know- party trick. Yeah, I was going to say, maybe at like future conferences, they can have like a, a cast off, you know, where like the, you know, people do like speed runs and, and do a chart calculating competition. Yeah. You know, that'd be right. Fun, you know. All the Virgos just like blow everyone else out of the water. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, or it'll just you be know, like five nerds in the corner doing it. You know. Right. Well, one place where this could come in real handy is at like a renaissance fair or something like that if you gotta you want to be an astrologer doing readings if you want it to be really authentic you should probably calculate things by hand you got a sundial (laughs) yeah a sundial and a very big like cart with a mule attached to it like to carry around all your books that you're gonna the books and then ticket mechanism yeah yes yeah an abacus yeah astrologers and their books um, all right, so that gives you all of the tools that you need. The books tell you the steps. Catherine's workshop tells you the steps. Besides that, and we'll circle around to mention those again, but are there any other major points that we wanted to mention about this or that we need to mention either as like meta points that we sort of started most of this discussion with or other things that are relevant in terms of calculating charts by hand that we haven't mentioned so far in terms of the books or aside from the books? I just want to say that it may sound daunting and also 
conversely pointless to learn chart calculations at this point in time. Um, but if I loved what Patrick shared about coming from this background where math at one point in your life felt intimidating, but you know, learning chart calculations, in fact, it's it's a lot of little steps, but I just want to reiterate that the math component really isn't hard. It's just a lot of memorization. And as long as you have your formulas and you know where to look, you're going to be just fine. Yeah. I mean, is it necessary for an astrologer to know how to calculate a needle chart? You know, I don't think so. It's not, I mean, at this time, <laughs> in, in the foreseeable future, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't seem like it's necessary. Is it ideally better? For an astrologer to know how to calculate a chart by hand, you know, I think, I think, yes, I think the answer is yes. It's ideally better because not only of, because of potential apocalyptic scenarios, but also just for, um, you know, deepening our understanding of the mathematical underpinning of uh, the astrological craft and to just have a full appreciation and awareness of this privilege, this amazing privilege we have in using astrological software. And um, that's, yeah, that's kind of my main sort of feeling about, you know, should we do it? Should, does it need to be done? Well, no, but ideally it's better if we do. Um, so it's, you know, it's worthwhile if one chooses to pursue it. Totally. Yeah, for sure. And from my perspective, one of the things that's important about it is um, I think it will give astrologers a better access point for truly being able to solve some of the long-standing debates in the astrological community like for example the house division debate when things like that come up for example like last month or, or whenever for most astrologers today it's just an option between clicking you know two different options in a list um, and the design or the the appearance of the chart changing and like the positions of the planets changing houses but many astrologers don't truly understand the fundamental astronomical principles underlying some of the different points in the chart and that's a real problem because it means you're limited in terms of how far you can go in understanding um, the motivation for some of the techniques and concepts that we use in astrology and the original astronomical motivation that some of the symbolic interpretive principles are based on and i do think that there's some very important um, astronomical and mathematical distinctions that are embedded in some of the charts and some of the different house systems and other techniques that we use, which if, if astrologers only understood the basis, the astronomical or mathematical basis of those better, they might have a better access point for being able to actually answer or resolve some of the longstanding disputes in the astrological community about things like house division, as well as other topics. I mean, we've also got things like you know, the tropical and sidereal zodiac or a number of different things that have come up over the course of of the history of our tradition, and um, you know some of those things are not going to get better <clears throat> necessarily by astrologers becoming less informed about the astronomical or mathematical basis of their subject. Um, it can only be improved, and it can only help us to move forward as a community and continue to grow and improve uh, collectively if we learn some of this stuff. And the the mathematics behind it um, with more detail and more precision and more accuracy. So I think I think that's one of the great promises of of approaching things like this as well and getting that education behind you. 
even if it's not something that you like regularly calculate every chart by hand going forward, um, it's going to give you a better appreciation and a deeper understanding of the topic. Totally. Right on. Yeah. Something unique to us as astrologers, I think, is that um, the way that we make use of our astrology in the present is only enriched by our understanding of our lineage and the past. And um, Chris, I know you did an episode um, like two years ago. I think it came out around the time that my workshop came out because um, I was thinking, oh, that's really good timing. Uh, you did an episode on the different house systems. Yeah, with Luis Ribeiro, we talked about the mathematics underlying some of the different different systems. Yeah. Yeah, so that was house division. Um, so that was in episode 313, which is titled House Division Calculations and Astrology Explained. Um, yeah, so the, there's that, which gives you more idea, more of an understanding where you might be able to approach the house division issue, but at least understanding the math mathematics underlying what each of the different different um, systems of house division, how they're dividing the quadrants or how they're dividing the chart into different slices, instead of just focusing on the outcome and like whether you know one house system places my Venus in like the tenth house or another places in the eleventh house or what have you, but instead understanding a little bit more of like. What would the what was the reason why they divided um, this system, or or you know what is the mathematical justification for this approach, and what differentiates it from another approach, or what have you? Yeah, I think Absolutely. asking, I think asking what a house system is trying to divide, or what is it trying to do, is it you know provides much more of a productive um, uh, discussion or, or more productive thoughts on it than it does to just yeah evaluate it evaluate it by its outcome you know is this planet in this house make more sense in this house um i think that if you understand yeah. the astronomy and the mathematics of different house systems then that makes your perspective on house systems more of a um not only more balanced or broader but it also makes whatever house system uh you decide to use it makes that it establishes that you're you're opting to use that you're choosing to use that as a choice that house system is a, a choice not just a an inherited um uh, disposition it's not just a default stance that you take but it's actually a choice and that um you know it's not out of laziness or something that you are preferring to use a house system uh that it is just coming from your understanding of the, the different uh principles of division Absolutely. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, and also, yeah, that's something like Demetra is working on recently is the observational astronomy underlying um, like the midheaven and what, because there's three different things that were called the midheaven in ancient astrology. There was the meridian, which was the quadrant midheaven. There was the uh, nonagesmal, which is the equal house midheaven. And then um, there's the tenth whole sign house, which was also referred to generally as the midheaven, as the name for that entire house in ancient astrology. So that there's this ambiguity when reading ancient texts sometimes, where you don't know which one they're referring to, or you have to infer sometimes contextually which one they're referring to. Um, but what's interesting and something Demetra has been working on recently in terms of the observational astronomy, and she's been talking a lot with um, the astrologer Gemini Brett about this. Is just what each um, different midheaven represents astronomically, and how 
um, the quadrant midheaven represents uh, sort of a middle point in time, or is is very cued into time as well as uh, location, since that's the uh, geographical uh, point of differentiation between east and west. But how, um, in terms of space and in terms of actual elevation or height, that the um, equal house and, and the Holstein house midheaven may actually be higher uh, in terms of space, even if it's not as high in terms of time or, or doesn't represent a middle point in terms of time. So there's a, a deeper access point there astronomically that we might be able to understand and start to then give uh, context for different systems of house division. If one of them is more keyed into space and another is more keyed into time, that might give you a, a different conceptual or philosophical access point for starting to resolve the house division issue by breaking it down into um, underlying astronomical principles and having a, a true understanding of what those are and what the chart is actually representing astronomically instead of just using it as this abstract two-dimensional diagram without having a true understanding of what the astronomy or the mathematics is underlying it. And that's something I think VR is probably going to be able to help us with because they already have astronomy apps on VR where you can be like inside the solar system or, you know, be on planet Earth and you can actually see it in 3D. So uh, although we're talking about the super analog retro practice of Australia, I feel like to, to take things further, we will, you know, there will be ways we can use emerging technologies right now to um, to uh, further our understanding of of the night sky and of course getting out there and looking at the sky helps too if you right. uh, don't have light pollution or clouds um but uh yeah i yeah. think that'll that'll absolutely take us back at some point to the early mesopotamian days where they would literally like go out when somebody was being born and like observe the sky and see what was visible or what was not visible and that the visible appearance of a celestial object or a celestial phenomenon had symbolic significance about what was happening or what was starting at that time, um, and that that it's almost like a sort of omen-based approach of like paying attention to omens in nature and omens happening in the sky being reflected in events on Earth. Um, but I think one of the things that'll be really interesting is you know in getting back to that is having like three D or three-dimensional pictures of like. You know what did the sky look like at the moment a person was born, and what celestial objects were visible or not visible? Was it bright out or was it dark out? And different things like that will be more possible at some point before too long here, where we're moving with technology and things like that. Yeah, it's so it's so funny you bring up Gemini Brett too, because not only is he such an awesome resource for learning astronomy for astrologers. Mm -hmm. But um, on the day that my son was born, uh, two months ago today, actually, there was a visible Saturn-Venus moon alignment in the sky, and Gemini Brett took a photo, a beautiful photo of it, and shared it on his social media. And I saw that, and I was like, that is my son's alignment right there. <laughs> and I actually emailed him, and he sent me a, an image file of it, so I'm going to print it out for him, which is really wow. special and cool. That's beautiful, and yeah. we've noticed this on noted this on social media. It might be worth noting here for the podcast that um, we recorded, I think, the Aquarius episode um, with Bear and Aaron, and I had picked out an electional chart with like an Aquarius stellium for that day, and then I later, a few days later, found out that that was also the day that you gave birth to your son. 
Yeah, yeah. So um, he got that beautiful Aquarius stellium that you used to record the episode, which is pretty cool. Um, nice. Yeah, one of the first birth charts that might have the astrology podcast stamp of approval. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. I love it. An oh. AP baby. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and he was on the podcast with me, actually, too. Yeah, he was, yeah. That's true. Yeah. He was technically in the, in the Libra episode. Yeah, <laughs> and, and so. the September forecast, I think. Yeah, so that's kind of fitting. Um, well, <laughs> perhaps not his last wow. appearance. We'll have to see how, thing, how, that, how that goes. Having an astrologer parent, which is a podcast topic we've done in the past. Um, yeah, with circling, Patrick. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Right, yeah. Um, so circling back, Gemini Brett, we I did an episode with him, episode 121, which was titled um, The Importance of Astronomy for Astrology. Although I may want to go back and like have that discussion with him again to get another side of this in terms of um, observational astronomy for astrologers. Because that episode, we actually, even though despite the title, we ended up actually just talking about how weird it was that flat earth theory had become really popular in the past several years and sort of got stuck on that topic. But we may have touched on some things that are relevant in terms of what we're bringing up here, but maybe it's time. That would be a good next step to maybe talk to him more, have him come back on the show to talk about some of the observational astronomy components that are underlying some of the mathematical calculations that we're talking about here, because that's still an important distinction even when you're calculating charts by hand using these books in the, the manner in which chart calculation came to be done in the 20th century, it's still kind of like an, even though you're getting closer to the astronomy, in some ways it's still a uh, sort of mathematical ab abstraction of things. And it's not necessarily the same as like going outside and looking up and, and seeing or being able to point out or view where different astronomical objects are, I think, right? Yeah. I mean, it's like, I mean, it just goes along with the differentiation between the tropical zodiac and the sidereal zodiac in the sense that when you look at where a planet is in relationship to the stars, it may not match up, um, you know, for us exactly using the tropical zodiac, but actually calculating a chart um, for, in the way that in the way that we would as astrologers today, we are still using. Um, a lot of the mathematical and astronomical uh, relationships that our planet has with the seasons, and like I like I mentioned with um, before, like the equinox points or the intersection of the ecliptic and our like equator, our celestial equator. So it still does have everything to do with um, the astronomy. It's just not as visual immediately i would say but then yeah. again i mean the sidereal zodiac too i mean not every not every constellation is 30 degrees so you could argue it either way well yeah, yeah well i shows depend on knowing where the vernal equinox is right because you're correcting so it's uh uh you know that we're, we're both kind of using both frames of references for e for each other i mean because you can because if you know where if you can locate constellations then you can roughly determine where the vernal equinox is um you know using the same method <laughs> so uh, just you're doing it the other way um yeah and i think what you're saying is both are abstractions both the tropical and sidereal zodiac to a certain extent but both also have observational components because that's the difference between like looking and seeing in an ephemeris that the sun for example just went into tropical areas a few days ago 
but then if you like go outside to a park and just like observe um sunrise and sunset and the length of the day at that part of the year versus if you go out three months from now at the um summer solstice and you observe sunrise and sunset and how long the day is and then you do that at the fall equinox and then at the winter solstice um you do get a much more visceral understanding of what those astronomical points are and how that ties into the tropical zodiac and therefore what you're doing with astrology and and why we're interpreting things in the way that we do so all of this is just getting us back to some of those fundamental like first principles which are ultimately astronomical and um visible or very tangible things that then we interpret symbolically and have some symbolic importance for our lives through astrology mm-hmm. all right well um on that note i think that we were shooting for a two-hour episode so we got a good two hours and 12 minutes here so thank you both for joining me so just to reiterate um where can people find your workshop catherine um, you can find my workshop chart calculations for the apocalypse on my website, which is katherineurban.com. Cool. And you're otherwise doing consultations, classes, and all the all the usual. You've got a YouTube channel that you are pretty active on. Yeah. So I'm just coming out of maternity leave. So I actually just opened up my calendar. Uh, so you might not ha- have to wait as long to get a session with me, which is kind of cool. And the other thing I have going on is, yeah, I have my YouTube channel where I do astrology shots of the day. And I actually just launched another segment called The Family Astrologer. And I'm really excited about that, uh, where I explore topics related to family dynamics through the lens of astrology. Nice. That sounds amazing. Um, So your YouTube channel, I think people can find that at youtube.com slash astrocatherine. Um, and they'll find all of your videos and content there. Yeah. Cool. All right. Uh, Patrick, what about you? You've got this new article. You just released it today. What's the title of the article again? Uh, should astrologers calculate natal charts by hand? Which I guess I could have saved myself a lot of time by just saying yes. But <laughs> yes. I had some other observations and some jokes to throw in. So, um, yeah, you can read that at my website, which is patrickwatsonastrology.net, and that's also where I'm available for consultations, uh, natal consultations, rectifications, horary, um, electionals, uh, tutoring sessions. Um, I'm also, I also have a YouTube channel, um, that I am sort of revamping, I guess, or will be. I'm also on Patreon. I also will be uh i'll be launching a a uh i guess i'm not sure what to call it yet i guess i'll be on i'll be on i'll be live with astrologer nick dagan best on twitch uh every week uh so we, we you'll have to uh watch our twitters i guess for um uh, when and where exactly that's happening but um that should be uh that should be pretty fun to cool. talk about astrology yeah. basically to hang out huh experiments in, in live streaming sounds good yeah experiments in live streaming i guess is was what it's uh what it is currently i think uh name is going to be exo astrology for like mm-hmm. exoteric astrology okay. but um yeah we'll we'll have more information about that later on cool. nice and just to clarify i think your website is patrickwatsonastrology.com not not dot net right did i say dot net 
Oh, so no. Not for oh no. Like, my yeah, I think I was so I was so focused on not saying Patrick Watson astrologer dot com that I said dot net. That's so strange. Yes, my website is Patrick Watson Astrology dot com. Thank you very much, uh, Chris. Um yeah. No problem. All right. Well, yeah, <laughs> well, I'll put I'll put a link to I'll put a link to both of your websites wow. in the description below this video on YouTube or on the podcast website for this episode. Uh but I guess that's it for this episode. So thank you both for joining me. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thanks everyone for watching or listening. Good luck with your chart calculations by hand. Let us know if you have any questions in the comments. Don't forget to subscribe and like, and we'll see you again next time. Special thanks to all the patrons that helped to support the production of this episode of the podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, shout out to the patrons on our producers tier, including Thomas Miller, Catherine Conroy, Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Issa Sabah, Jake Otero, Mimi Stargazer, and Jean Marie Kaplan. If you appreciate the work I'm doing here on the podcast and you'd like to find a way to support it, then please consider becoming a patron through our page on patreon.com. In exchange, you can get access to bonus content that's only available to patrons of the podcast, such as early access to new episodes, the ability to attend the live recording of the monthly forecast episodes, our monthly auspicious elections podcast, or another exclusive podcast series called the Casual Astrology Podcast, or you can even get your name listed in the credits at the end of each episode. For more information, visit patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. If you're looking to get an astrological consultation, we have a list of recommended astrologers at theastrologypodcast.com slash consultations. The astrologers on the list are friends of the podcast that have been featured in different episodes over the years, and they have different specialties such as natal astrology, electional astrology, synastry, rectification, or horary astrology. You can get a 10% discount when you book a consultation with one of the astrologers on our list by using the promo code astrologypodcast. The astrology software that we use and recommend here on the podcast is called Solar Fire for Windows, which is available for the PC at alabe.com. Use the promo code AP15 to get a 15% discount. For Mac users, we recommend a software program called Astro Gold for Mac OS, which is from the creators of Solar Fire for PC, and it includes both modern and traditional techniques. You can find out more information at astrogold.io, and you can use the promo code ASTROPODCAST15 to get a 15% discount. If you'd like to learn more about my approach to astrology, then I'd recommend checking out my book titled Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune, where I go over the history, philosophy, and techniques of ancient astrology, taking people from beginner up through intermediate and advanced techniques for reading birth charts. You can get a print copy of the book through Amazon or other online retailers, or there's an ebook version available through Google Books. If you're really looking to expand your studies of astrology, then I would recommend my Hellenistic Astrology course, which is an online course on ancient astrology where I take people through basic concepts up through intermediate and advanced techniques for reading birth charts. There's over 100 hours of video lectures as well as guided readings of ancient texts, and by the time you finish the course, you will have a strong foundation in how to read birth charts as well as make predictions. You can find out more information at courses.theastrologyschool.com. And finally, thanks to our sponsors, including The Mountain Astrologer Magazine, which is a quarterly astrology magazine which you can read in print or online at mountainastrologer.com. Thanks also to the Starscribe Astrology and Journaling app, which is currently running a Kickstarter campaign through April 22, 2023 to fund an exciting new mobile app for astrologers. 
Find out more information at starscribe.co. Finally, thanks also to the Northwest Astrology Conference, which is happening May 25th through the 29th, 2023, just outside of Seattle. This year's conference is going to be a hybrid conference where you can either attend online or in person. Find out more information at norwac.net.